Hello everyone, today is August 28th. Sadly, another unarmed black man has been shot by police this week. And if it's Friday, then this is the Dell. As Americans finished one political convention and prepared for another, the world came to a halt as we were forced to watch another case of police brutality. On Sunday, August 23rd, in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Jacob Blake, who's only 29, was shot seven times in the back by police as he entered a car where his three children were seated. His family says he has been left paralyzed from the waist down. Doctors are unsure if it's permanent. It was only on Wednesday that authorities gave some details about the incident. Mr. Blake was unarmed. Officers were not even called for him. He was only there trying to de-escalate a domestic incident. Then police drew their weapons. Only three minutes elapsed between the police arriving and shots being fired. As of this recording, Mr. Blake is handcuffed to his hospital bed. His family is described as heartbroken. He's paralyzed and he can't walk. And to add insult to injury, he's handcuffed to his bed. His sister spoke and gave these moving words. And when you say the name Jacob Blake, make sure you say father, make sure you say cousin, mm -hmm. make sure you say son, make sure you say uncle, but most importantly, make sure you say human. Human life. Let it marinate in your mouth, in your minds. A human life, just like every single one of y'all and everywhere in Washington, we're human. And his life matters. So many people have reached out to me telling me they're sorry that this happened to my family. Well, don't be sorry, because this has been happening to my family for a long time, longer than I can account for. It happened to Emmett Till. Emmett Till is my family. Philando, Mike Brown, Sandra, this has been happening to my family, and I've shared tears for every single one of these people that it's happened to. This is nothing new. I'm not sad. I'm not sorry. I'm angry. Mm. And I'm tired. Mm. I haven't cried one time. I stopped crying years ago. Mm. I am numb. I have been watching police murder people that look like me for years. I'm also a black history minor. So not only have I been watching it in the 30 years that I've been on this planet, but I've been watching it for years before we were even alive. I'm not sad, I don't want your pity. I want change. It's incredibly sad to hear her. My heart breaks to know my fellow Americans have to endure this. The American Civil War ended in 1865, and it seems as if ever since then, African Americans have been fighting for their civil and political rights. That fight continues today. An often forgotten period in American history is the Reconstruction Era that arose just after the Civil War. Newly freed African Americans obtained citizenship and the right to vote, 
African-American candidates rose up and the nation saw its first black mayors, house representatives, and senators. I had the pleasure to speak with Dr. Eric Matheson from the University of Kent to explore this period in time, to hear about its abrupt end, and to see its legacy today. This is another deep and eye-opening conversation. Let's take a listen. Hi, everyone. Today we have Dr. Eric Matheson, lecturer for the School of History at the University of Kent. So excited to have you on. Dr. Matheson, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you teach? Sure. I teach U.S. history, but also the history of the 19th century Atlantic world. So the United States, Caribbean, um, and with a particular focus on the history of slavery and emancipation. I want to talk a bit about the Reconstruction era. It's a heavy and like immensely consequential time period that we often overlook. Can you tell our listeners when and what exactly was the Reconstruction era and what is remarkable about this moment in history? The Reconstruction era more or less starts in the middle of the Civil War at about the moment when African-Americans are pushing for uh, emancipation and eventually get it uh, with the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. It kind of lasts through the end of the Civil War and on through the 1860s and 70s. It really becomes a moment in American history where the Republic has a series, collectively, a series of decisions to make, both about the place of African Americans in a post-war Republic and about the Republic itself and about how what kind of republic it's going to be. I think part of the reason why Americans don't often know very much about the Reconstruction era is is for that very reason. The, The Civil War is sort of, it marks a turning point in the country and in the country's history. But the outcome of the Civil War is pitched in the popular imagination, particularly as a moment when the Republic sort of develops into a a country that aspires to its highest ideals. And so there's a kind of unbrokenness to American history with the, the Civil War as a pivot. The Reconstruction era, in many ways, is even more consequential than the Civil War, however, because so many of the questions about the Republic and its future are going to be made in that in that period, in that post-war period. In a lot of ways, the Second Republic emerges out of that with all of the warts and all the problems that go along with it. In a lot of ways, it's sort of the, the tragic, even more dramatic aspect of the Civil War. It just carries on for two more decades, basically. During the Reconstruction era, there's like a host of acts and proclamations and bills passed, and it radically changes society. Yeah, absolutely. It becomes a question as to how radical the country is going to become. The backdrop to all of this is that 30 years before, 40 years more before, there were a series of emancipations that took place throughout the Atlantic world in places like Haiti, but also in the British Caribbean in the 1830s. And there were a set of precedents, if you like, for what would happen if the United States were to abolish slavery. There was the more radical road that was put in place by the Haitian Revolution, which was the creation of the first Black Republic in the Americas. There was also a kind of more measured British emancipation, where slaveholders were compensated by the British government for, for owning slaves and where enslaved peoples were effectively 
offered a period of apprenticeship between slavery and a hoped for freedom. So the question becomes, how do you, what, what do you do? What, what is this going to be exactly? The reconstruction era becomes about a measured response that is, that has to do with, for one thing in the 13th amendment, abolishing slavery, with the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment, then giving African-Americans rights as citizens and making sure that their rights were protected. Those acts, along with the efforts made to sort of bring the former Confederacy back into the United States, made it a story that is very much driven by legislation and driven by legal precedents, but also driven by politics at the national and also at the state and even local level. What did society and political participation look like for African-Americans? I mean, this is probably the most interesting um, aspect to the country's history. And it's one that I suppose has the most relevance to the United States in the 21st century. And that is that African-Americans saw the vote, saw the franchise as one of the most important things that they could do to cement their place in a post-war body politic. And as a result of that, they didn't just see the vote as, they didn't see the vote as something that was personal, something that was individualistic. They saw it as a communal possession. They also saw the necessity in a lot of ways to act in a very militant way, if need be, to protect their rights. So between 1867 and 1868, there's a massive voter drive once the the 14th and 15th amendments or the 14th amendment is is passed. Is this voter drive led organically within the African community, or is it from Northerners trying to enfranchise these new citizens? It's a bit of both. So it's with the help of the federal government and with the help of the Freedmen's Bureau, which was the bureau set up to basically protect African-Americans in the wake of the Civil War. It's partly to do with the federal army effectively organizing a voter drive. But it also relied on individual communities to do that. And one of the most amazing things about Reconstruction is that by the time you get to the 1868 presidential election, you have this incredible voter registration drive that is hugely successful. And African-Americans marched to the polls in extraordinary numbers. But it's also worth saying that they marched to the polls armed. They are ready for a fight if need be. There are a lot of accounts of African-Americans marching as entire communities in military precision, marching to the polls as a group to make sure that they protect themselves and that if there are any problems, that it will be met with force. What type of problems or obstacles would we be talking about here? Yeah, there were lots of things that stood in their way, to be sure. A lot of it had to do with extra-legal violence. The Ku Klux Klan emerges at the end of 1865 and sort of rises to a crescendo in, in terms of its membership by 1866-67. There are lots of other paramilitary white terrorist organizations that emerge as well, and they pose a real threat. There's also a threat, until African-Americans won the vote, there was also the threat that the legal and political systems within states would protect white privilege and would protect white supremacy. And they did in many ways. So you had black voters being turned aside despite having the right to vote. You had all kinds of informal efforts made to keep African-Americans from the polls. What's extraordinary, though, is that once it becomes clear that African-Americans, particularly in localities and counties where they're dominant, a dominant part of the population, once it becomes clear that they're not going away, the Ku Klux Klan's membership sort of takes a nosedive in the 
late 1860s. They almost disappear as an organization. And moreover, African-Americans see the opportunity with the vote to not just vote for people for Congress, but local office. That becomes the really important bedrock of Black political mobilization. It doesn't matter so much if you have a Black congressman or a, a Black state legislator. It matters almost more if you have a Black justice of the peace, a Black sheriff, a Black tax collector. Those kind of local positions really matter. And that's where African-Americans kind of turn aside this kind of extra legal effort to, to keep them from the polls. By 1877, we're seeing a shift. There's an election. A new set of Congress people in the House are really resistant to continuing these programs. Yeah. And it leads to the end of the Reconstruction era. What does that process look like? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with a presidential election. So in 1876, there's a presidential election very close to almost too close to call. It ends up being a photo finish in many respects, and it goes into the House of Representatives and and Congress to decide the result of the election. And there's a kind of brokered result whereby Rutherford B. Hayes, who was the presidential candidate for the Republican Party, he assumes office and assumes the presidency. But the brokered deal is that in return for their support for his candidacy, Southern Democrats get effectively the federal government out of the American South. And that, for a lot of historians, that sort of signals the end of Reconstruction. And it had been a long time coming in the sense that by the 1870s, you see a lot of Americans getting really tired of all of these persistent problems in the South. You start to see, by the middle of the 1870s, you start to see uh, white Democrats sort of ginning up a lot of opposition to Black-dominated Republican administrations in a lot of Southern states. These so-called Redeemer groups emerge. They want to take back control. But the broader context for this, too, is an international one, and that is by the 1870s, 1880s, there's a kind of white supremacist imperial move on the part of all over the world, really to sort of cement Anglo-Saxons at the center of power. And it becomes harder and harder for even sympathetic white Northerners to kind of keep up this fight. And so by the 1870s, that presidential election sort of puts the cap on what's left of Reconstruction. What's interesting, though, is that African-Americans will continue to vote. They'll continue to vote in smaller numbers, to be sure, but they'll continue to vote throughout the Mm. 1870s and 80s. Um, And if it if that weren't true, then there wouldn't have been a need for Jim Crow segregation and disfranchisement and all the other laws that are put in place in the 1890s. They still remain a threat. But by the 1870s, it becomes clear that the optimism of a decade earlier about what African-Americans could do with the vote is sort of emptied. Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois wrote in Black Reconstruction America, so the slave went free, stood a brief moment in the sun, then moved back again towards slavery. Is this kind of conceding that the Reconstruction was a failure? I think so. I mean, Du Bois was writing in the 1930s at a time when the history of Reconstruction was of real interest to an awful lot of people, but it was of interest to people principally to provide a historical justification for disfranchisement and for Jim Crow segregation. And when he published his book in 1935, he was very much pushing against the ocean. His book was 
lauded by an awful lot of people on the far left, but it wasn't reviewed in a lot of places. If it was reviewed, it wasn't really given the time of day. In that respect, the sort of hallmark of his argument is that Reconstruction was a failure. In making that case, he was effectively agreeing with a lot of white supremacists also that Reconstruction was a failure, but he sort of flipped the argument and said it was a failure for a different reason. White supremacists would have said that Reconstruction was a failure because it elevated African Americans into a position that they weren't able to deal adequately with the power that they were being given. So is Du Bois saying that is a failure because the federal government did not go strong enough? Yeah, that the federal government didn't do enough, that Americans didn't do enough. Reconstruction was a failure because African Americans had achieved amazing things. And they had achieved amazing things not only for their race, but also for their class. And that was the hallmark, in a way, of Du Bois's argument. He was making the case that Reconstruction was the only time in American history when a working class was in a position of political power. And his argument was, if they had been allowed to continue, African-Americans were very interested in joining forces with poorer white Southerners to achieve lasting economic and political change. And that that's the real failure of Reconstruction is that they weren't able to do that, 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 that they were effectively cut off at the knees. Even by the end of the century in the 1890s, when the Populist Party rises to power, they're again kind of quashed by Jim Crow segregation. And that that was the real, the real tragedy of Reconstruction is that a working class was not able to join forces. They were divided by race. What would an ideal Reconstruction have looked like? What would have made this huge civil rights program a success? You mean legislatively or... Legislatively, economically, politically, what would have... What would have tipped the balance? You know, yeah, what would have like made it kind of stand up to Du Bois' expectations? I think in a lot of ways, and this is something that a lot of historians uh, using Du Bois in the later decades have made clear, is that just as in the civil rights movement, during Reconstruction, African-Americans focused on political rights and focused on the vote as being the key to access, not just political power, but it was hoped for economic power as well. And in a lot of ways, that was a mistake. It was a mistake to think that you could secure one and then necessarily secure the other with the vote in hand. And in actual fact, it was an early decisions made by Republicans and made by the country generally in the wake of the Civil War to not give African-Americans the economic power to match the political power. That was really the death knell in a way for any kind of lasting change. You can have the vote all you like, and it's, it's not to diminish its importance, but you can't eat a vote. You know, you can't. You can't, you can't do very much economically with a vote except hope that the people you elect into power will, will be able to create programs, social programs that will help. And this African-Americans did. I mean, African-American governments at the state and local level did move mountains to try and create social programs, build roads, build bridges, all kinds of infrastructure uh, programs to help communities. But ultimately, it didn't solve the bigger problem, which is the war ends and former slaveholders are still holding on to their land. They're still holding on to a lot of their economic power. And 
not addressing that balance was in many ways the thing, just as with the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s, it, it was the thing that the, the circle they couldn't square in a lot of ways. So there's like an economic component that's just always been missing yeah. since the end of the civil war. Yeah, I think it is in a lot of ways. I mean, if you want to understand why a lot of African-Americans supported you know, Bernie Sanders' candidacy of recent past, I think that it has a lot to do with that. And there's a kind of thick stream of thought that runs throughout African-American history that makes that argument. Du Bois himself argued at length with Booker T. Washington about the importance of economic self-reliance. It's not that Du Bois didn't see the value of it. It's that he saw political rights as, as being the most important thing. Whereas Booker T. Washington would say, we have to let, raise ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We have to build our own communities, invest in our own businesses, and only then can we have meaningful power. And um, that, that conversation has been going on among and between African-Americans for as long as you choose to look. It's a really powerful part of what makes Black politics work. I feel really lucky to have you here because you studied this time period, not just on this side of the Atlantic or the U.S. side of the Atlantic, but across the Atlantic. What were some, I guess, successful integration programs in other countries? Or did they even exist? Were there other <laughs> successful yeah. integration programs? Yeah, I guess a few and far between. I, I think yeah. um, I think that there are... Uh, there are some examples that you see in some countries of a kind of integration effort that's made that does kind of bear fruit. And oftentimes it requires governments and countries to play the long game. I would have said, if you, if you were interviewing me 10 years ago or five <laughs> years ago even, I would have said that the UK is, is, is something of an example of that. There are an awful lot of problems in British society and in British government with economic inequality and racial inequality as well. It's not been talked about until very recently, but it seemed as though five or 10 years ago that there was an effort being made, the government was paying attention at least to the idea. It's a common problem. And I, as someone who is not British, who teaches in Britain, I think it's a real stumbling block because when I study American history, a lot of British students want to know how it's possible uh, that, uh, that African-Americans could have been an underclass for such a long time. And, you know, they... They see that as being such an irony in a nation dedicated to liberty and freedom and independence. But I don't have to work very hard to point out things much closer to their homes that suggest that this is a problem no matter where you look. And that when we think about race and racial inequality, a big part of the picture going back to Reconstruction is, is to think about the economic inequality that goes along with it. That race isn't meaningful as a category of analysis or as, as a thing in the world. It's not meaningful without economics, in a way. Mm. It's not meaningful without those other kind of class differences that make race sort of a justification for, for difference. This is a question that just popped in my head, but I was wondering, what were other countries saying about the United States during this time? They had just finished the Civil War, they're starting this huge integration program. What are other countries saying? Yeah, it's so often the case that Americans look inwardly at their own past. And certainly in the Reconstruction period, there's an awful lot of inward-looking focus, right? Focused on the story of the United States. But actually, Reconstruction has a really interesting global history. And one of the 
really interesting aspects of that global history is that people were looking to the United States and looking at what was happening in the United States because the 19th century was an incredibly radical moment in modern history. In 1848, the revolutions of that year convulsed much of Europe. A little over a decade before, the United States was convulsed in its own civil war, and there were lots of other conflicts as well, political as well as military. I think the big thing that people were wondering in the wake of Reconstruction was what kind of republic was going to take shape. And this was a really big question on the minds of an awful lot of people, both in and out of the United States. Prior to the Civil War, the United States was the great emerging market of the modern world. There was a concern as to whether or not they would be in, in the aftermath. And in a way, that gives you a clue as to how Reconstruction ended, because it was a worry on the part of decision makers in Washington about the durability of the American economy that allowed them to sort of say, right, well, you know, having giving rights to African-Americans is great and everything. However, it can't get in the way of making sure that this republic is on some solid foundations. Paying attention to the dollar signs had mattered almost as much, if not more, than any kind of uh, political radicalism that African-Americans could be in a lasting way included in their body politic. It seems like Congress had no belief that African-Americans could economically contribute to the economic success of America. One, they didn't want to offer kind of like a economic incentive to this integration program. And then they want to put a halt on this integration program because they thought it was going to affect the U.S. in, in economic terms. I think that's part of it. I mean, there was a worry in the wake of the Civil War that African-Americans would not go back to work, that they wouldn't do as they had done before, which is provide an immensely important labor force for the most important part of the American economy at the time, which was, which was the cotton economy. It was a hugely big part of the national economic picture. So there was that worry that African-Americans would take their labor elsewhere or would choose to do other things with it to move to other parts of the Republic and leave this, this cotton economy effectively starved of labor. But I think it is true that, you know, if we're thinking about the 19th century and the, sort of an age of capital, the American government was concerned with capital and those who had it and those who didn't. Ultimately, the Republican Party, which had always been a big tent party with lots of different groups in kind of loose alliance with each other, it had always been the case that this Republican Party was both, on the one hand, abolitionist, which is to say devoted to the ending of slavery, while at the same time, a party of big business, right? A party of corporations. Those two things never, never matched up in any meaningful way. And by the 1870s, you see very much the, the kind of ideological commitment to African-American equality diminishing quite dramatically, so much so that by the 1880s and 1890s, there was no doubt that the Republican Party may have been the party of Lincoln, but it was principally the party of capital and the party of big business. What are some of the legacies of the Reconstruction era that we might see today? I think they're everywhere if you choose to look. I mean, you said at the outset that Americans don't know the history of Reconstruction very well. In one sense, that's true, insofar as Americans don't study it with the kind of laser beam focus that they might the Civil War. But the legacies of Reconstruction are everywhere and anywhere. You don't have to walk very far in any American town to see evidence of it. 
the easy things to see, reconstruction in popular culture, the biggest movies that have ever been produced by Hollywood, one of them is Birth of a Nation, which is a history of reconstruction that was blood-curdling and blood-chillingly told uh, to rapt audiences for generations. It was the biggest selling film in American history for a long time. And that told the story of Reconstruction that became the dominant story throughout the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. You can also see it in statues and monuments, particularly in the South to the Civil War. Those monuments are not there because of the Civil War. They're there because of Reconstruction. They're there because of a white supremacist effort, which I think has metastasized all over the globe. One of the most interesting aspects to that movement has been the attention that it's paid to history and the attention that it's paid collectively to the Reconstruction moment. A lot of lessons get learned about what worked and what didn't during the Reconstruction era, as well as the Civil Rights Movement. That group is in many ways one of the legacies of Reconstruction in all of its forms. I want to talk a little bit about Confederate statues, because obviously during this time there's been a lot of people and people want to remove them and they're being torn down. One of the biggest responses from supporters of these statues is that, oh, it's our heritage. Oh, it's it's our history. Even the president says, well, like if we start tearing these down, like who's next? George Washington, <laughs> Thomas Jefferson, you know, just thinking about it personally and being a person of color and then also being an American citizen and being patriotic. I don't know how I feel about a monument to a traitor to my country. And why is that rationale so difficult? Why won't that sink in? I don't know. I think a lot of it has to do with the way that we remember the Civil War and the fact that we don't talk about who lost the Civil War, the groups that lost the Civil War, as traitors at all. I think that's a really important aspect to the story that we don't really think about all that much, and we ought to. The first book I wrote was called The Loyal Republic, and I spent a lot of time thinking about that very issue because uh, it was certainly the case that in the wake of the Civil War, African-Americans wanted their service, their military service to the United States. They wanted that to be the thing that would sort of pry open the body politic. They saw that as a really important moment. The country was divided, and the question of where African-Americans stood was really important. And they, as far as they were concerned, they stood with the winning side, and that ought to mean something. That ought to right. win them something versus those who had attempted to destroy the republic. But by the time you get to the 1860s and 70s, there's a real kind of the, the almost original culture war. There's a war over history a war over who gets to tell that story, who gets to tell the story of the war. And by the 1870s and 80s, and certainly by the beginning of the 20th century, African-Americans are effectively written out of the Civil War, to the point where they aren't even discussed in a lot of uh, history books, and certainly the history books that kids would read in school. And those Confederate monuments placed a, a capstone on that effort, on that agenda, Basically, it's a slap in the face. In most southern towns, these statues aren't erected on the edge of town or, you know, in some field somewhere or in a Mm. cemetery. Uh, They're erected in public space. They're in front of courthouses. They're in front of state legislatures. They're in front of city halls. They're there as markers to effectively say, you might have served in the war, but we're the ones who have won this particular longer war. You might have won the battle, but we won the conflict. And that was hugely, hugely important 
to white Southerners in the, in the 1890s who were genuinely concerned by the 1890s that they were going back to a, a reconstruction moment. There were all kinds of economic depression. At the end of the century, and African-Americans were joining in common cause with poor whites across the country in the populist party. It was a real force to be reckoned with. And the only way to divide and conquer was to erect these statues and to divest African-Americans of the vote. I think for that reason, just to get back to your question, for that reason, I think those monuments, they're not history. They are artifacts of history. And for that reason, they ought to come with plaques that accurately lays out why they were erected, who erected them, for what purpose. The, the context is king in this regard. I think if you were to move them out of public spaces and put them in museums, that's where they belong. They, they, they don't belong in public space. And they certainly don't belong as weapons used to beat Black communities around the country. It's just a very bizarre thing. I don't know what losing side of a civil war across the globe has been entrenched into the culture where they get monuments to them. It's it's really, really bizarre. It is extraordinary. What are some things we'll see in this upcoming election that might have pieces of it kind of like rooted in the Reconstruction era? We're seeing like this great wave of voter suppression. What are some other kind of tales that might be emanating from the Reconstruction era? I'm reminded that when I was reading earlier today about President Trump's attacks on the Postal Service, it reminded me quite chillingly of the presidential election in 1875. It was widely considered to be the most corrupt election in American history. And it was undertaken largely in an effort to destroy Black political organizations across the South. And there were an awful lot of congressional committees that were investigating this election in the aftermath. And the things they come across were incredible. People throwing ballots out of the sides of moving trains in order to despoil them. People destroying uh, ballot boxes left, right, and center, stuffing ballots, I mean, ballot boxes. It was just an extraordinary effort. And it was very coordinated. And I think because of the way that the electoral system in the United States works, it's very susceptible to the kind of corruption that, that could take place at the state or even local level. That's something that is on an order of magnitude that perhaps we haven't seen since. Um, certainly hope that that's not the case, but it seems like there's a kind of dog whistle thing going on in the way that Trump is talking about these institutions that protect the election and the electoral process. I definitely worry that there are going to be some widespread problems. That's like a very scary thing <laughs> to like pop in one's head. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, yeah, remember that, yeah. Remember that grand yeah. time right after Civil War? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that election, that 1875 election was just extraordinary in large part because it was the turning point. It was a coordination across states, and it involved people in the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives all the way down to precinct captains and counties wow. across. Yeah, the... that's like vast coordination. Yeah, it was really successful. And it had been planned for some time. And it came complete with uh, newspapers that would pop up almost immediately. Yeah. The Ku Klux Klan published newspapers in, in random counties to gin up some controversy about some elected official in a small county in the middle of the South who they saw as being corrupt. And they would publish an issue and it would look very official and it would look like a newspaper. So it, it seemed to be legitimate. 
but in actual fact, it was fake news. And, you know, this is the 1970s version of that. As a kind of coordinated campaign, they were very good at rapid response, which reminds me an awful lot of social media attacks and all the bots that you see sort of ginning up all kinds of confusion about what's fake and what isn't uh, real news. And I think that that kind of thing happening in the 1870s, you can definitely see how that can upend an electoral system and how it ultimately saps people's belief in an electoral system, which is, is a really quite fragile thing. Confidence that if I post a vote in the ballot box, that that vote is going to count. It's a really simple thing, but it can be easily done away with. And that's it's a really fragile thing to be messing with. It's something that we have to think of 145 years later. Have we really grown at all? Have we matured at all as a country? You know, there are a lot of parallels with the Reconstruction period. Um, and I think there are a lot of parallels on the other side of the coin, though, right? So an increasingly radical moment for people on the left, an increasingly radical moment for African-Americans and a lot of other ethnic minorities who are wanting to have their voice heard. It's a real moment of choosing. I just hope that it, it doesn't resolve itself so much as the country lives up to its, its better angels. Dr. Matheson, <laughs> this has been... Uh riveting conversation thank you so much this i i i feel like i learned so much i'm thank sure you. the listeners um they're gonna have their minds blown well, i hope so that's brilliant thank you very much for having me yeah absolutely thanks for listening in that's the delve i'll be back on monday with another special news edition to review the republican national convention i'll talk to you then